Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Christ crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize you, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You may be seated. As you get seated, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Gracious God, write your word on our hearts. Rid, of, rid us of distraction and open our eyes that we may see glorious things in your word today. Amen. My family and I moved here from Singapore two years ago. If you don't know where Singapore is, you should Google it. And you think to yourself, can a country really be that small? The answer is yes. <laughs> when we moved here, there were lots of things that were different that we had to get used to. People talked different. They talked much slower. <laughs> it's not I'm who's talking fast. People look different. They ate different, they drove different, they dressed different. I didn't know denim on denim was a thing. <laughs> the first meeting I attended at Christ City, I remember I was sitting there and I was asking, I started asking myself, why is it that every single person is wearing the exact same pair of shoes? <laughs> like they've all just come from a construction site or something. I say this partially to draw attention to the fact that I have now my own pair of Blundstones. <laughs> and I can tell you, it was a momentous occasion in the Bay household. <laughs> but it's interesting, while there are lots of things that are different between Vancouver and Singapore, there are actually lots of things that are the same. For example, there's an openness to new ideas and a desire for change and personal advancement. We all upgrade our gadgets to the latest model, don't we? We queue up for the latest restaurants. We talk about the latest shows and podcasts. And isn't it unheard of nowadays for someone to stay in the, in the same job, working for the same company for their whole life? Because nowadays, a job is just a stepping stone, isn't it? To get to the next step, the next level of pay, the next rung in our ladder of personal advancement. Another similarity is the importance of our personal brand and status. How people view us is really important, isn't it? We Photoshop our photos. We curate our social media. We make sure we're seen with the right people, hashing, hashtagging the right hashtags, saying the right things. Now, why am I talking about this? Here's the thing. These similarities in culture that I've just mentioned are actually similarities that Vancouver also shares with the Corinth that Paul was writing to 2,000 years ago. You see, Corinth was a young port city 
that was a melting pot of cultures and ideas. It was, attract, it was a place that was attracted to new ideas and focused on personal advancement. Everyone was just trying to claw their way up the social ladder. And so it's a place where people prized their personal brand. Sound familiar? There is so much of Corinth's culture that we can identify with, and identify with today. And I want us to hold this in mind because this is really helpful because understanding Corinth's culture is actually really important for us to understand today's passage. But first, some context on today's passage. We know from Acts 18 that Paul founded the church in Corinth. He was the original church planter there. And then he stayed there for about 18 months to build up the church. And so even after leaving, he continued to keep in contact with the Corinthians by letter. And so the letter of 1 Corinthians that we're studying, where our passage is from, is one of several letters that Paul wrote to them. In 1 Corinthians, he's writing to them to respond to two things. The first is, he's responding to a letter that the Corinthians have written to him. That's what chapters 7 to 16 are all about. And so when you read chapters 7 to 16, you'll notice Paul is responding to different parts of the letter that the Corinthians have written to them, to him. Now concerning marriage. Now concerning the things you wrote about. Now concerning food offered to idols. Now concerning spiritual gifts. But that's not all that Paul is responding to. He's also responding to a report from some of Chloe's people. You see, on the side, Chloe's people have updated Paul about some developments that the Corinthians have left out of the letter that they wrote to him. That's what chapters 1 to 6 are about, which brings us to today's passage. In today's passage, Paul is addressing the first big problem reported to him by Chloe's people. And then he gives a solution, which are our two points for today, the problem and the solution. The problem and the solution. So here's the problem. We see it in verses 11 and 12. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. You see, what the Corinthians were hiding from Paul was that the church had been divided into different factions and rival groups. And each group was pledging loyalty and allegiance to a particular leader. And not just that, then they had started quarreling and forming rivalries with each other based on who they followed. Based, in some cases, on who they were baptized by. That's why Paul says he's so relieved that he didn't baptize many of them. So that they wouldn't have an excuse to form a faction based on who he baptized. Look, look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. And we can imagine some of the conversations going on in the Corinthian church, can't we? Oh, you haven't been baptized? you should try your best to get baptized by Cephas when he's next in town. Have you heard about the kind of miracles he's done? What it will mean to be baptized by someone like that? Oh, 
I wish Paul preached a little bit more like Apollos. Why are you still following Apollos and hanging around with his group? Have you checked out the new preacher in town? He's got a fresh approach and his followers are just the kind of people you want to be seen with. Oh, you're a Christian, are you? What kind of Christian? Who do you follow? Remember what I said about Corinth's culture? A place that was attracted to new ideas where people prized their own advancement and where people focused on their personal brand and status? Some of us can see, can see it, can't we? On the surface, the problem was that the church had divided into rival groups under different leaders. Under the surface, though, there was a deeper problem, wasn't there? The church on the outside had come to be shaped by the culture of the world. The, the church on the inside had come to be shaped by the culture of the world on the outside. You see, the culture outside was constantly fascinated with the new. And so the church inside was constantly flocking to the next big-name preacher in town. The culture outside prized and elevated eloquent speakers of rhetoric. And so the church inside started elevating celebrity preachers and, follow, and forming personality cults around them. The culture outside was obsessed with personal status and advancement. How you got ahead was based on who you knew, who you were seen with, and how people viewed you. And so the church on the inside splintered into rival groups, pledging allegiance to different celebrity preachers and their followers, sniping and putting down other groups. We can see it, can't we? The church on the inside had come to look exactly like the culture of the world on the outside. They had come to value charisma over character, creativity over content, the new over the established, personal status and comfort over the well-being of the other. Instead of the church changing the culture of the world, the culture of the world was changing the church. Even though we live in a different time and a different place, the point to us is the same. Have we allowed the culture on the outside change our church on the inside? Here are four questions for us to think about. First, do we find ourselves saying, I wish this preacher were more like this other one? Maybe we say that because we've taken on our culture's tendency to compare and even rank preachers. Or perhaps we've consciously or subconsciously taken on the individualism of our culture. And so we expect every preacher to suit our preferred style of preaching. Second question. In a culture that values credentials and style and success, do we sometimes judge a preacher based on credential and styles and success rather than content and character? We need to be careful here. In our passage, there is absolutely no hint that the leaders have done anything wrong. The same way that many well-known preachers today are of good, godly character. But the problem is our tendency to idolize and elevate and place gifted preachers and leaders on a pedestal. And that is so dangerous, isn't it? 
Because then we blindly accept that whatever stand they take on an issue is the correct stand that we should take as well. And history is littered with celebrity leaders and preachers who've gotten away with horrific sin. Sin that has been tolerated and the church has turned a blind eye to throughout even years because people think, that can't be true. Look at how the church has grown. Third question. In a culture that loves to create personality cults, might, might we be following a leader rather than following Christ? We follow the pastor to whichever church the pastor is working at. Or we'd rather watch sermons from a particular pastor online, even if the pastor's in another country, another continent, rather than join a local church in person because, well, that's the only pastor who can really speak to me. Fourth question. In a culture that thinks that the only way to succeed is to put down the other, do we find ourselves sniping at or putting down other groups or churches? Preparing for this sermon, I have to say, was a sobering experience for me because I realized how guilty I have been and continue to be in all these accounts. And I dare say I'm not alone. I need to clarify though, I'm not saying that culture is not important. It's really important for us to understand our culture and for us to do ministry and preach the gospel in a way that our culture can understand and relate to it. I'm also not saying that there aren't objectively bad preachers and good preachers. All preachers and teachers of God's word must work hard to become better preachers, to better preach God's word and serve the church. No, but the problem is when we allow our culture and our preferences to divide and influence how we treat different preachers and then influence how we treat each other. See, the problem is when the personality of the preacher becomes the point of attraction. When people focus only on how well the preacher preaches rather than anything that the preacher actually said. The problem is when, when people follow the preacher rather than Christ, we've lost the gospel, haven't we? And that's when we become divided. So that's a problem. So what's the solution? The solution on the surface, at least, is to be united. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. In just one verse, Paul makes five references to unity. In response to the quarreling and the factions in the Corinthian church, he appeals to them that they all agree, that there be no divisions, that they be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And so when, and when Paul talks about unity, in this case, he's, he's talking about divisions over leaders, but it's actually relevant to all types of divisions in the church, aren't there? Because let's be honest, there, there are lots of divisions. Scholar Craig Blomberg puts it this way, the disunity of the church of Jesus Christ remains one of the greatest scandals which compromises its witness today. I feel like I need to read that again. The disunity of the church of Jesus Christ remains one of the greatest scandals which compromises its witness today. You see, the church, we, 
are to be a witness to the world of what Christianity is all about. And so what we divide over is what people think Christianity is all about and what's important to Christianity. When we divide over allegiance to a particular leader, the world thinks the leader is what's important. When we divide over style of music, the world thinks it's the style of music that's really important. When we say it's about personal preference and how I feel, the world thinks, hey, to each his own, to each her own, it's personal preference that's really important. As Paul writes, when we are divided, the world thinks Christ is divided. They think that the, the church is just another case of you do you. Disunity in the church is a scandal that dishonors Christ, which is why unity is such an important theme in the Bible. The thing is, though, most of us wouldn't disagree that unity is important, but we often try to achieve unity in the wrong way, don't we? Here are two mistakes we, we often make about unity, and we say, we are include me. <laughs> the first mistake is this. We take a unity-at-no-cost approach. Unity at no cost. We're all for unity as long as it doesn't cost us anything. As long as everyone else wants exactly the same thing as we do. As long as we don't have to compromise any of our personal comfort or sacrifice any of our personal preferences. But we know what happens, don't we? When everyone's focus is on finding a church that makes them the most comfortable and suits their own personal preferences, we end up with uniformity instead of unity. We end up divided into churches where everyone looks and talks and thinks and dare I say even smells exactly like each other. We divide into young people churches and old people churches. We divide into white churches and non-white churches. We divide into rich people churches and poor people churches. We divide into... We divide into cool music churches and traditional music churches. Christ City is Christ divided. When my family and I, we moved to Canada, the first question lots of people asked about Christ City is, is it a white church? You see, we think that by dividing the church based on preferences, we're preserving unity. But as Craig Blomberg writes, a far more powerful witness occurs when people agree to learn to sing music they don't naturally like and support activities that are not their highest priorities. So for those of you here, and I know there are, there are, there are those of us here who don't agree with everything that Christ City does, or you have a different preference of some things, can I say thank you for being a gift to our church? For those of you here who don't agree with someone about something, would you take the time to graciously examine your own perspective and humbly seek to understand the other person? You don't have to agree. But if you were to 
Describe the person's position in your own words. Would that person say it's fair? Would you take the effort to love and honour that person regardless of the differences you have? For those of you here who don't think, who think that you don't look or sound or think like the majority of the people here, thank you for being here anyway. For those of you who are here and see someone sitting alone, especially someone who doesn't look or sound or think like you, would you take the time to get to know them? You see, unity is more than all of us just wearing bloodstones. If we want unity more than uniformity, it's going to cost each of us something. It's going to cost us the comfort of having everything exactly how we want it to be. It's going to cost us the energy it takes to get to know and love people who are different from us. Let's be honest, it's more work. It's going to cost us our pride to apologize to the person we've wronged. You see, gospel unity will always cost something. But of course it does. It cost Christ his own life to unite all of us into one body. Of course it's going to cost us something, cost us everything to display this, this heart-worn unity to the rest of the world. You see, unity will always cost something. But then we must not go to the other extreme of trying to maintain unity at all costs. That's the second mistake we often make, trying to maintain unity at all costs. You see, unity is important, but it's not the most important thing in the church. You see, when we make the mistake of taking a unity at all costs approach, we end up willing to sacrifice anything and everything on the altar of unity so that we can stay united. And then what happens is you're willing to sacrifice anything and everything, even the gospel, even key biblical truths and doctrines. One church doesn't believe in the Trinity, then we all won't believe in the Trinity. One church doesn't believe that Jesus really existed, we all won't believe that Jesus really existed. You see, with the unity at all costs approach, we end up with a church of the lowest common denominator. A church that ends up even compromising truths about God and the gospel. But that's not what God is calling us to, is it? You see, God is not calling us to unity at no cost. He's not calling us to unity at all cost. He's calling us to a unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. God isn't calling us to unity at all cost. He's not calling us to unity at no cost. He's calling us to unity around the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel message of reconciliation and redemption. The key is in, is in the first half of verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is using the name of Jesus as the basis of his appeal. But he's also doing something else. He's, he's also repeating a phrase he's used earlier on in verse 2. Let's, let's take a look at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, 
called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. If you can, if you've got, if you've got the, the scripture journal, you can circle it and just draw an arrow. He's, he's repeating the same thing. You see, in verse 2, Paul has been reminding the Corinthians of what unites them with each other and every single Christian around the world. They have all been sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are called to be saints, you look at the language, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul in verse, verses 1 to 9 is doing several things. He's greeting, he's giving thanks to them, but he's also using verses 1 to 9 to set up his exhortation in verse 10. His exhortation for them to unite around Christ. You see, Paul uses the name of Christ nine times in the first nine verses because he's telling the Corinthians not just to be united, but to unite around the only person they have in common, the person of Christ. You see, a Christian before anything else is a follower of Christ. And so all Christians, no matter how different, are united to one another because we all call upon the name of Christ. One of my favorite things about working with Brett, he's the guy who was giving announcements if you're new here, is how different we are. Some of you may have noticed this. <laughs> we are literally born in opposite ends of the world. He's Caucasian, I'm Chinese. He's rural, I'm urban. He's a risk taker, I'm risk averse. He's spontaneous, I'm prepared. He's tall and I'm handsome. And I'll be honest. <laughs> it's the cross I have to bear. <laughs> I'll be honest, sometimes our differences are a challenge. But our differences is also what makes it so special because if you look at us, you'll know we have absolutely no reason to be united. No reason at all except that we both call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Amidst differences in the church, the only path to unity is to unite around the person of Christ and his gospel message of reconciliation. See, this is why it can never be a unity at all costs, because compromising Christ and the gospel message is a cost too high. Christ and the gospel message is what we unite around in the first place, and so we can never give that up. This means that not all division is bad division. If there's a cancer in your body, you've got to cut it out. If someone is distorting the gospel message, we must make our stand clear. But that's not what was happening in Corinth. Disunity and quarrels and rivalries arose because they allowed their culture to dictate what was important. Their culture was how they decided what truth was and so they drifted away from the gospel message and the person of Christ. The only way to address disunity in the church is to unite around the only person who can unite the church, who has united the church and will unite the church, the person of Christ and his glorious gospel message.
This means that whatever issue we're wrestling with, and I dare say all of us are wrestling with something or other, we start by asking ourselves, is this a gospel issue? Or is it a, a preference issue? Does it compromise my ability to learn and grow in the gospel? Or would the discomfort actually help me to grow in the gospel? See, God calls us not to uniformity, but a gospel unity that is made more glorious by how diverse God's church is. A gospel unity that gives a glimpse of God's plan for the world. When Jess and I were younger, we went backpacking in Cambodia. And for those of you who've been there, you know there are lots of these very historical ruins. So we visited many of them, uh, including Angkor Wat. And I'll be honest, many of them, as much as I tried to look cultured, just looked like stones stacked on each other. And you wonder, what, what sort of fuss about but then there are some small sections that have been slowly and carefully restored with great cost and care. And those are the sections that give you a glimpse, just a glimpse of the magnificence of that building at the height of its glory. That's what Paul is talking about when he talks about unity in verse 10. You see, when Paul writes that you be united in the same mind and same judgment, the word united has the sense of being restored, of being repaired to unity. You see, the point is that when we unite around the gospel, we are part of God's plan to restore his church, to give the world a glimpse of the magnificence of his body. The solution to divisions and quarreling in the church is to be united. But the only way we can be united, the only way we should be united is around the person of Christ and the gospel. You see, what we've seen is that the person of Christ and the gospel is who we unite around. We've also seen that God's plan for us to display his glory to the world through gospel unity is what should compel us to want to be united. But there's something else. The gospel is what empowers us to be united. The gospel is, and Christ is who we unite around. God's vision of unity is what compels us to be united. But lastly, the gospel is what empowers us to be united. Look at verse 17. Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's not saying here that he intentionally preaches badly. Don't, don't leave with that impression. When he says words of eloquent wisdom, he's making reference to the, the fancy, sophisticated rhetorical techniques that public speakers of his day used. And we need to be clear, he's not using them not because he can't. He's well trained in that. But he's doing it because he won't. You see, the gospel is at the core of Paul's preaching and ministry. And so whatever he does, even his preaching, he does it in a way so that he does not distract or move the emphasis away from the gospel and its power to save and unite. So what might this mean for us? 
I think about the times that I'm reluctant or afraid to share the gospel with others. And if I'm being honest, it's not because I don't think the gospel is true or powerful or that they need it. It's because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what they think of me. You still believe that? How can you believe that? I'm more concerned about what they think about me than their need for the gospel and the gospel's power to save and transform. I wonder if some of you are in the same boat as me. Some of us, many of us, may be overwhelmed by the divisions we see in the church. It's difficult to know how how to make sense of everything, to know even where to start. My encouragement to you is to start with the gospel. Don't start with what people are arguing about. Start with learning about what the gospel is because at its heart, that's what we learned today, the church is just Christians who unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those of us who are working through the tension of our faith and culture, we must be honest with ourselves. Are we measuring truth based on what our culture says and what we prefer? Or what the gospel and God's word says? Think of a value or a position that we hold very dearly, that we would fight tooth and nail for because we think it's just so obvious. How can, how can anyone disagree with that position? Where do we get that value from? Where do we get that position from? Is it from Scripture? Can we, can, we, can we explain where we got it from Scripture? Or is it just assumed from our culture and because everyone else is saying it? Most often, it's a bit of both, isn't it? And that's when it gets murky. We take something that Scripture says and we are we twist it a bit to fit what we think it should be and then we fight for it tooth and nail because that's what God wants. But you see, when we don't take the time to think through our cultural lens and bias, we're often uniting around culture, not the gospel. And that's a problem firstly because culture changes. In our arrogance, we think that our culture is what matters. <laughs> our culture is the most enlightened and therefore... It doesn't matter what other cultures think. They're going to get to where we are. But that's not true, is it? The other problem is when we distort God's, the gospel and God's word to fit the culture around us, we unite, we divide, don't we? Let me give an uncontroversial example. Many of you are thinking, what is Sam going to talk about? So, let's talk about vaccinations and masks. <laughs> Many of us are caught up in the debates. Sometimes we are the cause of the debate. Sometimes we're the innocent bystander. So what do you think, Sam? Oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. We must ask ourselves, are we uniting around the gospel? Or have we allowed our cultural bias and preferences to fuel disunity and division and quarreling? If by the end of this pandemic, 
all that has happened to the church is we have divided into masker and anti-masker churches. Vaxxer and anti-vaxxer churches, Christ City, we have lost this beautiful opportunity. At the end of one of the greatest upheavals that our generation would face, if all people come away with is, well, the church is more divided, that is a scandal to the gospel that Christ gave his life for. But let's be honest, vaccinations and masks are not the only things that we Christians divide over. And 1 Corinthians, for those of you who have read ahead or know a bit about it, is a book that is going to touch on many hot topics and cultural taboos. Many Christians have and continue to and will divide over issues that Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians. And we'd be naive just to assume that 1 Corinthians won't surface differences among us. But what if, what if, instead of division and quarreling, our differences reinforce our unity around the gospel? What if out of these differences, we have a unity that is made stronger and more evident and more beautiful because of our differences? And then what if someone comes to our church, the city sees our church, and they get a glimpse of the power of the gospel when they look at all of us here and go, what on earth is uniting such different people? What if, they, what if the city has a glimpse of God's magnificent plan to reconcile all things and all people and unite every tongue and tribe and vaxxer and anti-vaxxer and anti-masker and masker and every single person into one body? What if they have a glimpse of a plan so magnificent that Jesus would give his own life for it? A plan so beautiful that they will want nothing more than to join us.